yes, sir. So, uh, John chapter 11, verses 45 through 12, 8. I'll read these verses for us. <clears throat> then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the thing Jesus, things Jesus did believed in Him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that this is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not the whole nation, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now he now this he did not say under his own authority, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together and one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to the city called Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will come and that he will not come into the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, they should report it, that they might seize him. Chapter 12, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take from it what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Father, as we open your word, Father, we need the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. So, Father, we pray that uh, the Holy Spirit will open our eyes and open our hearts and let us hear the truth from your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we just came off uh, of this amazing miracle, this culmination of the miracles of Jesus in the book of John, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And uh, we see that many people, as we're introduced here in verse 45, the people were divided. Uh, Many believed in what Jesus has done. As we get to this chapter, we see a change. We see uh, these verses, we see uh, a shift. And uh, before we get into uh, the verses and start looking at uh, the things, one thing we need to, before we get into um, a lot that's going on here with Caiaphas and the high priest, We'll talk a little bit about the history, um, a philosophical system. Uh, it's known as pragmatism. Anybody ever heard that word, pragmatism? Okay, pragmatic, have you heard that word? 
Well, pragmatism, okay, as a as a philosophical system, was born out of skepticism. Skepticism uh, as to uh, the elites, the educational elites, right? Skepticism as to our ability to understand ultimate truth. Okay, so the elites, the smart ones among us, right? The scholars, uh, because of their skeptical attitude, and 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 we, no one can define ultimate truth. Well, you're left with a problem, right? So. When when you live in that world, you have to ask yourself, well, how do we live in a world okay, where we cannot discern ultimate truth, this skepticism, right? Well, in that system, okay, in that system, the elites would say, well, we can't define ultimate truth, so good things and true things are defined as that which works. So pragmatism was born. Okay, out of a, out of a, as a, as a philosophical system anyway. But pragmatism is not new. Okay, it's not, it's not a new thing. Uh, it's been around for ages. We see it here today in our passage dealing with Caiaphas. Uh, Caiaphas, we could say, would be the king of the pragmatists of the first century. Okay. Uh, after uh, Jesus had raised Lazarus, again, the, the people were divided. Uh, many who had witnessed the miracle believed in him. And we see here that uh, in verses 45 and 46 that they went away. Many of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. And with that, uh, with that report of what Jesus has done, the authorities began to lay out their plan in order to get rid of Jesus. Now, when you hear pragmatism, you, you, you hear um, you hear uh, some people say, well, prag- uh, pragmatism or being pragmatic is also being practical. It's not necessarily true. And we're going to talk about that as we talk about uh, that, uh, that philosophy or that way of looking at things. But let's look into the verses here. So in, we see this response, this amazing miracle of Lazarus being raised. And so here in uh, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council. So the 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 Sanhedrin, okay, if you remember, the Sanhedrin uh, committee consisted of chief priests. Um, most of these were uh, from the Sadducees. And so they gathered this group together. Uh, the, the Pharisees, although they, we, we've talked a lot about the Pharisees, right, in this book, uh, they could not by themselves take any political action against Jesus. They needed help. Uh, so they needed the help of the Sanhedrin. Uh, and so, uh, though Israel, Jerusalem is under Roman occupation, the Sanhedrin was the highest uh, judicial body in Israel. They made judicial judgments, they did legislative judgments, and they had executive powers. Again, the, in this day, there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin dominated uh, by the chief priests, and, and almost all of them were Sadducees. So the Pharisees, as we, we talked a lot about the Pharisees, they were... Uh, a minority in this scheme of things, but they were an influential minority. When, uh, and is just as more of a background, the Pharisees and Sadducees often disagreed about a lot of things. They were often in conflict, but as we see here, both of them have one thing in common. And what is that? They both hate Jesus. Both groups, they hate Jesus. And so that united them into action. And this was the question that was put before them here in verses uh, 47 and 48. It says, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. 
Wow. Did you hear what they just said? So here it is. Here's the key, right? Here's the motivation behind why they hate Jesus. Why? They feared that Jesus' growing popularity would create an uprising. And then the Romans would have to come in, be forced to come in and stop it. And that what? That might cause them to lose their power, their position. And that's what they're scared of. They're scared of losing their own power and their own uh, position. Now remember, they're under Roman occupation. They... The Romans uh, allowed a certain bit of home rule in the nations that they had conquered. And so this meant that the Pharisees and the Sadducees enjoyed certain positions okay, of authority on the council. And they had a, a high degree of prestige. But here you have this man, Jesus. And he is threatening that. He is threatening their position. Uh, Dr. Sproul said, so that was a comment? Somebody had a comment, question? Feel free to ask if you, if you have a, something you want to say. It's, it's no problem. Okay. Um, Dr. Sproul at this point, he said, years ago, I was asked to write an essay on the question of contemporary persecution in the Christian church. And the question came, because when you consider persecution in the world, uh, the question was, why, well, why don't we, us Americans, the, Christ, the American church, why don't we suffer the same level of persecution here in the U.S. that we see going on around the world? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question. Well, there are many explanations for this. Uh, part of the explanation we have to go back to why this country was founded and who founded this country, right? Uh, this country was founded by refugees who wanted, uh, who were fleeing religious persecution, right? That's why they came here. Right? They, they did everything in their power to try to create a culture uh, to write laws that would guarantee freedom of religion, right? Religious freedom, the free exercise of religion. They did everything in their power to do that. And they did a pretty good job in the beginning, right? But what we have seen today, modern America, modern world, is we've seen a shift from toleration of Christianity and now we see a growing hostility towards it. Don't we? We see that. Dr. Sproul added, that's not the whole story. Okay, that's not the whole story. It's part of it. Okay, that's part of it. That's not the whole story. He added that another part is that why we don't suffer the same level of persecution is that we American Christians have become very artful in conflict avoidance. Let me read that again. We as, a, as American Christians have become very artful in conflict avoidance. When we read, of course, the pages of uh, the New Testament, especially when we had our study in the, the book of Acts, we see Paul during his missionary journeys. He was boldly proclaiming the gospel, the exclusivity of Christ, of Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord. And what happened? What was the reaction most times? Some, most people were ready to kill him, right? <laughs> they were ready to, to stone him, to throw him in prison, to beat him, right? This, this bold proclamation. But... But we uh, in America have learned to avoid that sort of thing. 
we, we may think that it just isn't practical to be that bold in the proclamation of the gospel today. In other words, we have embraced expediency. That's not necessarily a good word. It sounds good, doesn't it? Expediency sounds efficient, right? Certainly not a good word. As a, as a noun, okay, this, the definition of that word as a noun is the quality of being convenient and practical despite possibly being improper or immoral. The first part sounds good, right? Being convenient and practical, right? Despite, in spite of possibly being improper or immoral. It's pragmatic, okay? Doing the ends justify the means. Have you heard that? That's pragmatism. The ends justify the means. No matter how you get there, as long as you get a good ending. Doesn't matter who you step on. Doesn't matter who you have to lie to. Doesn't matter what you have to steal as long as you win in the end. It's okay. Well, Sproul and Sproul's words, we as American Christians have embraced expediency. Dr. Sproul has it has been said that the church in the United States has been placed on a reservation. Hmm. Think about that for a minute. The church has been placed on a reservation. We are allowed to exist. We're allowed to meet. We're allowed to gather, right? Um, we're allowed to practice our faith. We're allowed to pray in our churches. But we're not allowed to leave the reservation. When we move into the public square, when we bring our faith into the public square, we are quickly reminded there's no place for that here. For example, uh, if a, a Christian is asked to pray at a ball game, for example, if they pray and they end their prayer in Jesus' name, what happens? Outrage. Right? Outrage. R.C. Addy says, but I've noticed when, when you think about the outreach, somebody would pray in Jesus' name. He says, I've noticed that it's not just the secularist, the non-believers, right? It's not just them who complain. In some other cases, Christians will also complain at that. Why? Well, if these bold Christians, if, if they're drawing attention to themselves, then we're all going to get attention. And we just, we just want to live peaceably and quietly. We don't, we don't want to cause a fuss. We don't want anybody to call us out. We, don't, we want to live peaceably on our reservation. They don't want to disturb a busy world with the good news. The good news of the gospel. And that, my dear friends, is a big problem, isn't it? That is a big problem. Well, that is exactly... What is happening in Jerusalem? That's exactly what is happening in the verses that we are reading here today. The the Jewish authorities had compromised the word again and again and again and again so as not to upset the Romans. And so when this Jesus comes on the scene and and he is preaching boldly. He's performing amazing miracles. He raised someone from the dead. And he's extracting a following. The, Je- the Jewish leaders say, if, if we leave this man alone, then he's going to stir up so much trouble that the Romans are going to take action. They will come after us. Because why? Because he's a Jew. They're going to hold us responsible. And then our place in this nation 
our prominence, our prestige will be lost. So what are we going to do? In, in short, the, the Jews wanted to prevent Jesus from causing a stir among the people. And they would end up losing their positions of power. Sounds a lot like politicians today, right? Politicians today will do anything to stay in power. They will compromise. They will tell you what you want to hear to stay in power because they like it. Well, it's at this point that we see one of them propose a solution. Verses 49 and 50. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that this is is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas. Okay, Caiaphas has has become had become a high priest in AD 18. He had been appointed by the Romans. Uh, his father-in-law was also uh, in the same position. They had great influence over their their tenure. Uh, Caiaphas remained in office uh, until AD 36, when, along with Pontius Pilate, who we're going to talk about in a minute, along with Pontius Pilate, they were both removed by the Romans. When you spend, when we mention, uh, we're talking about Caiaphas here, but when we mention uh, Pilate's name. You ever you ever wondered uh, why Pontius Pilate's name is included in the Apostles' Creed? We say it every Sunday, don't we? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. What what is it about Pilate that made him so important as to be included in the Apostles' Creed? The the Roman emperor's name at the time is not included. Um, Caiaphas' name Caiaphas's name is not listed. Many historians will say that he made this into the Apostles' Creed because he passed judgment on Jesus saying, I find no fault in him at all. You remember, right? He examined Jesus. And what, was his, what was his, what did he come to the conclusion? I find no fault with this man. Right? Behold the man. He, he made these, these statements about Jesus. Well, that I, the idea... That uh, the idea is that in spite of himself, right, uh, he declared the truth of God. That was true, what he said. There was no fault in Jesus. There was no reason to do any harm to Jesus, to put him into prison or anything. What we see, though, that um, what God can do is that God can bring his word to pass even through an unwilling spokesman. Can he? Right? He sure can. And he did that. But, But in the end, what was Pilate's problem? He was a pragmatist. Pilate was a pragmatist. He, he let, he allowed Jesus to be crucified in order to avoid conflict. That's why he allowed it to happen. He, he refused to ask or even answer the question... What is the right thing to do? He, he refused to. Instead, he asked, what is the expedient thing to do? What's going to make this problem go away? Right? We talked about what's the definition of expediency, right? Doing whatever you can to, to, without, regardless of whether it's improper or immoral. 
Is allowing an innocent man to be crucified immoral? Improper? I would say so. But he was willing to do it. To avoid conflict. Well, the Jews, led by Caiaphas at this point, did the exact same thing. They did the exact same thing. Dr. Sproul tells of a time... uh, when he was asked to serve on a uh, commission of presbytery with a local presbytery, and they were charged, <clears throat> excuse me, with investigating a conflict in a local church that was about to split the church in half, and so the presbytery met. They established a commission uh, to go and and resolve to investigate this conflict. There was uh, discussion, you know, talking about the. The, the pieces of the argument, you know, with well, these people over here, this and this, and and the discussion was going. How do we how do we compromise in order to save this church? Basically, is where the commission was was going. How do we how do we compromise to keep this church from splitting? And so, as he said, Dr. Sproul said at this point, he reminded the commission of this, and I'll read his words. He says, "Our primary task is to administer justice according to truth and grace." Not just make a decision designed to keep everybody happy. That's not going to happen anyway. Wise words, isn't it? Wise words. It, it appeared uh, that, and this is Dr. Sproul's words, it appeared that the commission was about to make a decision based on pragmatism, expediency. How do we, what's the quickest and easiest way to resolve this? Let's, what do we have to do? What do we have to compromise on? What, what truth of Scripture should we compromise on so these people will stay together? Hmm. Well, unfortunately, that's been in the heart of fallen man since the beginning, hasn't it? It's been in man's heart. At this point, Dr. Sproul asked, he says, do you realize how much like Caiaphas we really are? Hmm. That's a hard question, isn't it? So do you realize how much like Caiaphas uh, we really are? We, we often, regularly, make decisions based on fear. A fear of what might happen. We don't want to make anybody mad. We don't want to provoke anyone. We want to remain silent. A wise Presbyterian general from our history once said, never take counsel from your fears. For what you fear will befall upon you. Every time, the reality is every time that the gospel is proclaimed boldly and accurately, the church experiences persecution. Every time. Every time that the church speaks out against ungodliness in the culture, there is backlash. Every time. What what did we hear? It was, if memory serves me correct, during COVID, when a lot of churches were being forced not to meet, but some of them said we're going to meet anyway. We're going to defy what you say. What was the threat? Do you remember the threat? that was put out there from the government to the church? 
We're going to take away your tax exemption status. You know what a lot of them said? Big deal. What are some tempted to say? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, what? Oh, wait a minute. We, people give to us and they tithe because it's tax exempt. And they get a credit. And, and we don't pay taxes. We, we better think about this for a minute. Before we push too hard against the government. Expediency. How do we keep peace? Hmm. Dr. Sproul said, I have no desire to go looking for persecution and conflict. And that's true. We're not, that's not our goal, right? We don't go looking for a fight. That's not the point, right? But the fact is that I live, this is Sproul, that I live so free from persecution, it makes me question my commitment to the things of God. Wow. Think about that for a minute. He's basically saying what? I don't experience persecution. What does that make me think? Am I really committed to the things of God? Or am I being pragmatic in the way I live my life? That's a question all of us should ask ourselves, shouldn't it? What compromises have you made to keep a job? Or to get a promotion? Mm. Think about it. That's a hard, that's a, that's a difficult question, isn't it? Have we sacrificed the truth of God for uh, a raise at work? Hmm. So this is back to what's what's going on here, right? This is that's a, that's a modern application, right? The things we're seeing here are not they happened two thousand years ago, but we still struggle with the same things, don't we? We still do. It's real. It's here. John moves on. John moves on in verses. 51 and 53 through 53 says now he's referring to what Caiaphas said about the one man dying. He says now this Caiaphas did not say on his own authority, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Caiaphas was being utterly expedient. He did not care about the life of an innocent man. He wanted to kill him to avoid losing his position of power, right? But what does John tell us? John tells us there's something else going on here. John John tells us that the high priest was prophesying without even knowing it. Caiaphas didn't, did not realize the implications of the words that he spoke. While, while, while he uttered blasphemy against Christ, God was, was, was weaving His words together, right, uh, in, in His statement into truth. What, he's, what He said about the one man dying for the many. The, the, the respo- and the responsibility, again, Caiaphas' heart was wicked. Right, he hated Jesus, and so he's he is responsible for these wicked uh, words that belong to him. But God's providence, God's providence directed the choice of his words so to express the heart of God. This is my plan. Yes, the one man will die for the many, but not because you want it, Caiaphas. Because that's the plan from the beginning. This is the way it's going to happen. The one will die for the many. He was actually being God's God's prophet. He was the high priest, 
right? Uh, what was the function of the high priest? The high priest was to reveal the words of God to the people, right? Went away, he, he did that. He, he didn't know he was doing that, but he did. Jesus, the fact is, Jesus would die. Not for everyone, he would die for his people. And not just those among the Jews, would it? He would die. He has, he, has, he has sheep from another pasture. That's what he told us, right? He's going to bring those in as well. He's going to die for all his people. And so with that, we see the high priest's blessing. Um, he's given his blessing. So let's make the plans. Let's work together. We're going to make a plan to execute Jesus. And so with this, as a result, what does Jesus do? Jesus leaves Jerusalem, he says in verse 54, that he went there uh, into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And then there he remained with his disciples. This, this town is about 12 miles from Jerusalem. So he went about 12 miles from town. Figured this would be a safe, this would be a safe distance for now. Of course, it's, it's just temporary, right? But it's a safe distance uh, for now. Verse 55, it says, And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, if you're keeping track, uh, this is that now the third Passover mentioned in the Gospel of John. And of course, this would be the last Passover in Jesus' earthly ministry. Verses 56 through 57, it says, Then they sought Jesus. So they're gathering, they sought Him. They spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? You think that He will come to the feast? Hmm. Now both of the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew He was there, that they should report it so that they may seize Him. So immediately following this this whole stuff, this, this 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 display of expediency, okay, on behalf of Caiaphas and the rest of them, all this is going on. This again, Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead, and and now we see the response. So all this this is happening, and so as it's, it's, it's immediately following that, John gives us a much different picture. We have expediency, okay, on behalf. In the opening verses of chapter 12, John shows us this manifestation of this extravagant love and worship for Jesus. It says it happened later, six days before the Passover, Jesus is back in Bethany, and he was invited to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And during the meal here in verse 3, it says, that Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil and anointed the feet of Jesus. And wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. This was an act. Again, what are we just, what's going on? John's putting these things right behind each other for a reason. I mean, it happened in that, in that chronology, but I, but I mean, he, he goes right into this, 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 this callousness of Caiaphas. And then you see here that he tells us about what Mary did. For Jesus, this this is a great. Uh, it's an act of great love and great humility. Why do we say humility? Well, because it involved Jesus's feet. What's the problem with that? Well, you remember, right? What did John the Baptist say about himself in relation to Jesus? He says, "I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals." Right? That's what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Right? Remember that a rabbi, and this Jesus was treated as a rabbi. The disciples were essentially his servants. Right? You remember that. 
But as even as the disciples, even as servants, they were never required to attend at his feet because attending to someone's feet was considered the lowest of the low. Okay? So, so when John was saying, I'm not even worthy to untie a sandal, he's saying, I'm lower than a disciple. I'm not even worthy to be a servant of Jesus. That's what John the Baptist was saying. Well, Mary probably felt the same way. But what do we see here? She gladly cleaned Jesus' feet. She was, she was happy to do this for Him. We learn here that the oil she used was worth one year's salary. 300 denarii, right? One denarius is one day's wages. 300 represented a whole year. Well, it was 365 days, right? Well, they didn't count the Sabbath and they didn't count the holy days. They don't get paid in those days. So 300 days was a year's salary, okay? So this, what would cost a year's salary, she used up in a matter of seconds. Gone. Can you imagine that? Take what you... Take something that you have, whatever your year salary is. That's a year salary is whatever it is, right? Some higher, some. It's worth a lot to you, right? Because it's a year's worth of work. Imagine something that valuable gone in seconds. Well, this again was extravagant love. It was extravagant. What? And this is the point. At this point, Dr. Sproul said, "What could you and I do?" that would be too extravagant in honoring Jesus? What could we do that would be too extravagant in honoring Jesus? He says, you know, and, it, and, and I get this, I can understand. So anyone who's ever been in love at some point, right, has, has made an extravagant gift to their loved one, right? It's, it's the gift is an expression of their love, right? That's, that's, that's good. That is, that, is, that is wonderful. When we think about our love for Christ, if, if we do love Christ, then it's appropriate for us to love Him extravagantly. Why? Because He's worthy of it. He is worthy of an extravagant love from us, from His children, from His adopted family. So we see this amazing act of love, but what does John tell us? There's one there that ain't happy about this. There's one here at supper who ain't happy, right? Verses 4 and 6 says, But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put into it. Judas objected, right? And he tried to portray himself as some good guy, right? And we could have given this to the poor. This is a, this is, this is a great, uh, I'm such a great humanitarian. I want the best, right? But John tells us what's in his heart. John knows what's in Judas's heart, right? Judas wanted the money to be put in the treasury because he, killed, he, he controlled that. And he would help himself to what was in it on a regular basis. When Mary did this, all he really saw was profit for himself. That's the only thing he saw. Profit for me. And it's poured out all on the floor, completely wasted at the feet of Jesus. Now what was Jesus' response here? Jesus defended her, didn't he? Verses 7 and 8 says, But Jesus said, Let her alone. 
She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always. But me you do not have always. Now when we read these words here for a minute. At first glance. At first reading. Right? It may sound that Jesus' words are a little callous. Just first glance. Right? It's like, what? Is he just saying we need to ignore the poor? Unimportant? No. He was not saying the poor should be ignored. Rather, what he was saying is the opportunity to serve him in a tangible, physical way was coming to an end. That time was about to end. He knows what's ahead. Right? It was just in a matter of days. It's not going to last much longer. While the ministry to the poor will be with you always. That's Jesus' words. Now, uh, R.C. Sproul takes a, a point here and now to tell an example of a minister who he knew who labored for decades in the inner city of Cleveland. Uh, he worked among the poor, uh, the needy, the, the drug-addicted people, the, the people that nobody else cared about in this city. And he'd done it for years, served for years. He had associate pastors who would, who would graduate seminary, who they would come in and help. And they would come in and help, and they would, the average that they lasted was about two years. They quit, and they left. And R.C. said, well, why don't they last? What's two years? The man said, well, they, they quickly become disillusioned. They come out of seminary. They're eager to do the work of God. They come into the ghetto because they want to labor for Christ where people are hurting. But they very soon become depressed and they leave. So Dr. Sproul said, so how is it that you've been able to stay all these years? He answered, because of the words of Christ, the poor you will have with you always. Now Dr. Sproul said, you know, every time I've heard that verse quoted, it was used as an excuse to neglect the poor. Not to minister to the poor. He answers, says, well, what I understand Jesus is saying is that we will never be able to eliminate poverty. Therefore, when I came here, I had no expectation to solve all these problems. I realized that for every person there is brought in here out of the ghetto, another is brought in. My mission isn't to get rid of the poor. My mission is to minister to people who are suffering from these things that while they are here, and, and while they are here, I will be here with them. Wow. That's a tremendous testimony, isn't it? It's a tremendous testimony. He knows that what Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor with you. What's, what's, what, this man saw this. It's, never, it's always going to be a thing. I'm never going to solve this problem. And the church is never going to solve this problem. right? We're never going to, always going to have people in need. And so he knew that going into this. These, these young people had the idea of what? They're going to fix problems. And they're going to make it all better. And, and sure they, I'm sure they did fix some things, right? The Lord probably used them in a mighty way. But the problem... Didn't go anywhere. It's still there. It just has different faces on it. Right? Well, Mary was thinking along uh, the same lines. Uh, Mary, could, if you had to 
she basically saying, I, "I've saved this for Jesus' burial, but I'm going to give uh, I'm going to give this gift now. I can minister to the poor tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, and so on. But it's not every day that I'll have left to show my affection for Christ. After all, this man just raised her brother from the dead, right? She did this as Lazarus was sitting at the table, the same man who whose body was just recently rotting." In the tomb that Jesus made new, that Jesus made well. Hmm. Dr. Sproul ended this section and says, You know who else should have been there? Caiaphas should have been there. Hmm. Caiaphas should have been there. He, he should have been there saying, We know exactly who you are because we've seen the signs. We don't, we don't care about the Romans. We don't care about what that may do. We don't care about losing our positions of power. We recognize you as our Lord and we're going to pour out our love to you regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences. But of course, that wasn't expedient for him to do that. It wasn't expedient for Mary to do this, but what? She did it anyway, didn't she? She did it. Mary's uh, devotion has been memorialized forever because we have it in God's Word. And Jesus Himself, we'll end with this, Jesus Himself gave the death blow to this philosophy of pragmatism and expediency when He told the people these words. He told the people that that philosophy ultimately is not practical when He said over in Mark 8, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for a soul? How much is your soul worth? Is it worth your prestige? Is it worth your year's salary? Is it worth freedom from safety, from persecution? Well, in Jesus' mind, there is nothing in the whole world that can be given in exchange for the value of your own soul. He gave His blood for your own soul and the soul of all His people. The bell has rung. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for our time. Father, we thank You for the lesson before us. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we pray that Your Word will change us today because we were here. Because we heard from You and we heard Your truth. Father, as we leave this time together, Father, as we go into our worship service, Father, thank you for our pastor and how he leads in our worship. We pray for him this morning. We pray that you will speak boldly through him. And we pray that our worship will be acceptable before you today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.